0: Hey, dear listeners, today's guest is the brilliant, talented, and relatable Hassan Minaj. We talk about high school crushes, love, marriage, patriotism, the origins of his comedy, and a lot more. We agree to disagree on who was the better Batman, so let me know what you think. Later in the episode, April and I talk with a listener who is examining the relationship he has with his parents now that he's become a father himself. I really want to thank everyone for their openness in sharing these stories. It makes me so happy to see what the Unqualified community has become. If you want to write to us, just go to unqualified.com and look for the link. Okay, here's Hassan. <laughs>
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris.
0: Can we get something awkward out of the way? I wanted to pronounce your name Hassan, but I don't think that's correct. I think it's Hassan.
2: Yeah. Hassan. Yeah.
0: All right. Hassan, you never have to say my name, but it is Anna as opposed to Anna. My parents did that to me. I asked them a couple years back why they did that. And my mom said, Well, I told your father.
2: Oh. <laughs>
0: they don't understand that this has been a very minor life struggle. I've been accused of arrogance. Because Anna sounds very like bourgeois.
2: Us. Yes. Yeah.
0: And the insistence on it is even more obnoxious.
2: Anna's a little bit more proletariat. <laughs> You're one of the people. Anna is top shelf, it's fancy stuff. <sighs>
0: All right. So, Hassan, I'm a big fan of a podcast called Snap Judgment. Okay. And I heard your story about growing up in Davis with the bicycle, your father and your sister, which is an incredible story. Would you mind for our listeners recapping it?
2: Yeah. I can kind of give you the quick rundown. I'm a child of immigrants. My parents immigrated here in 82. My story is very similar to a lot of first generation kids in the US, where when you came to the States, depending on where everybody was at in your family, different people were on different tracks. So my dad came here, he was an organic chemist, and my mom was finishing med school. So she was doing her residency and rotation. Long story short, I spent a lot of formidable years with my dad when my sister moved back to the States When I was eight, she was four. I always wanted a blue BMX bike. I never got one. And I think my dad, as a way to overcompensate, gave my sister this beautiful blue BMX bike. And for anybody who was a 90s kid like me, a BMX bike was like the ultimate Veblen good. It was everything. Gave it to her. She was so excited, but what was very sweet was that she saw that I really wanted the bike. And so she was like, why don't you take it out for the first ride for one lap around the cul-de-sac.
0: You have to be unbelievably frustrated on this ride, I would think.
2: Yeah, and I was like, I'm the first child. I've been in here. I've been in the trenches with you. You're overcompensating. This new little girl has come into the house. She is totally messing with your, like, (laughs) emotions. And so there was a lot of, like, vengeance and anger, and I'm going to show you. And I remember just taking that bike and I turned the corner and I popped a wheelie because that was like the big thing that you would want to do on a a BMX bike. You try to pop a wheelie and like spin the front handlebars. And I just ate it. And I remember she ran over and she was just bawling because I had completely scratched up her brand new BMX bike. And she's like, Hasan Bai, why would you do that? It was this very seminal moment where I'm like, I'm really being an asshole here to my little sister.
0: And she really was relatively new in your life, correct? She was
2: new to my life. She was new to the country. We were all kind of coalescing and congealing as a family. And so when we came back home, you know, obviously I didn't tell this in the snap judgment story, but I got a whooping. My dad was like, you do not treat your sister this way.
0: Okay. So you moved to Davis, California, which is like the most quintessential Americana town. I know this because my brother teaches there. He's a fourth generation sociologist at UC Davis.
2: Whoa. At UC Davis? He's an Aggie? Yeah.
0: So we go up there. I'm familiar with Davis. It's a lovely town. It is really fucking hot in the summer. But it is what one may imagine as Americana in their mind. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. I describe Davis all the time as any town America. At the time, I felt like no other place is like this. When in fact, all of America is pretty much like that. A lot of my experiences that I had growing up, and I tell a lot of these stories in my stand-up and my specials. I grew up with Cody, Corey, and Cole. But every city has like a Cody, a Corey, and a Cole.
0: My generation grew up with Ryans, some like TJs, a lot of Jennifers.
2: It's kind of crazy because I'm seeing kids dress like baggy clothes, bleaching their hair. I'm like, oh, this is the way I dressed in high school.
0: I decided during quarantine to really, like, go platinum. So my fiancé's been dyeing my hair with the L'Oreal kits that we've been getting. And it sure could use a touch-up. Anna,
2: everybody's doing the hair dye thing during quarantine. What's going on with that? Why? Talk to me.
0: (sighs) I think because the stakes feel low. Like, you're not going to see anybody. For a lot of us, the shift to working from home, if you are not an essential worker, I think that there is a little bit of a lack of identity in a sense.
2: Is it maybe you get a chance to open mic a look? No pressure. Everyone's at home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Nobody's going to Getty image snap the platinum blonde unless you want them to.
0: How have you handled the past year?
2: I've been rocked and Bina, my amazing wife, she has told me, you've been a miserable person these past 13 months. And she is right, because the thing that has frustrated me the most is the pandemic took two things away from me, irrespective of partisanship or politics. It took away plans, which everybody agrees on, like plans make everything. And then the second thing that it took away that was really hard for me was agency, Just to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, I remember you had reached out to me to do the podcast. And one of the things that I messaged your team back, I was like, I would love to do it in person if that's possible, because I did not realize this about myself, but I have discovered this. I love connecting with people. I love being on stage. I love performing. And I have experienced such digital disillusionment that I feel like as an artist and as a creative person, the little nooks and crannies of our interaction, the way you're holding your hair right now, your posture, my posture, there's all these thousands of little micro things that go into being a human being that my iPad or iPhone just cannot capture. And that being taken away from me, I felt rudderless. I'm like, where is my place? Where where is my purpose? You know,
0: we've talked to a lot of standups on the show and something that's always fascinating to me. There does seem to be, no matter how successful a standup could be, there still seems to be in most standups that draw to continue to do it until they die. Do you think that you had that? And if you didn't before, do you feel like maybe there is something there now?
2: Totally. My style of standup isn't traditional setup punch. It's a little bit more of like longer form storytelling. But one of the things that I have used the art form for is a medium for me to understand myself and my own human condition. And one of the things I love the most about the art form is that it's a medium for comedy, which is release but also confession. Like, look at my first special, Homecoming King. I remember working on it with my director. And as we were getting ready to take it off Broadway and then on tour, he gave me this note that I really loved. And he said, just pretend for the 72 minutes that you're telling the audience a secret. Give your stories that confessional feeling of, hey, there's this public secret that I want to share with you. And that really cracked open something inside of me. And I realized that's kind of the way I see the world. Even here, I'll just have notebooks of these, like, stories and these interactions and these things that I want to work out. But the underlying theme of all of it is, like, am I crazy?
0: Oh, I love that. Okay, so do you mind if we talk about high school? What was your experience like?
2: So, like, I went to high school in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so one of the things that became very cool and popular five to 10 years later was being cerebral became very sexy at that time. But... The speech and debate, impromptu forensic stuff was not very cool at the time.
0: Did you go to any high school reunions?
2: No, but one of the things that I have done is that the people that were really nice and sweet to me, I still keep in touch with. And I try not to be scared in being candid with my feelings towards them. Those are the reunions that are like worth going back and reliving and and still being in touch with those people. There was a girl that I had a crush on. I'm not going to say her name, but... We ended up bumping into each other and we just got to small talk. And then I don't know what got into me, but I was like, hey, I had a huge crush on you in the eighth grade and I wish I would have told you that. And she was like, I had a crush on you.
0: That is so satisfying.
2: Yeah. And I'm like, what? And she goes, yeah, it was like two ships crossing in the night. And I cannot tell you how thrilling that moment was. At age 34, totally. I found out she was into me. And I remember she said something along the lines of, I think you were a lot cooler than your perception was of yourself. And that massive breakthrough where I think even as an adult, we have a certain perception of ourselves, but the way the world sees Anna or the way the world sees Hassan is completely different than what's happening up here. There's this narrative that's happening in our head and then there's the way the world perceives us. And oftentimes those two things are massively disconnected.
0: Yeah, I got a little weird pressure to go to my 20th high school reunion, and I hadn't kept in touch with anybody. I think the most interesting thing was how people were trying to portray their new selves. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I talk about this a bit, but I was really struck by the self-describers. The idea of upon meeting someone, they tell you that they're spiritual or they tell you that they're a Gemini. And I viewed sort of Angelinos in our industry as being drawn with like worship-like fervor to fads. When you perform in certain cities, do you have a sense of like what kind of crowds? And did you have a similar feeling about Los
2: Angeles? L.A. was a very dark, trying place for me. I did not have a good experience. I met a lot of very close people. When I got hired at The Daily Show, I kind of made that promise of, I think I'm going to just be a New Yorker.
0: Do you mind my asking about Los Angeles and why it made you feel that way?
2: Yeah, I think it was the sheer desperation, clout chasing. And when a city is defined by one specific wavelength, I think that can be not fun to be around. So making it in show business is the one wavelength that operates everything in Los Angeles. And that is very corrosive to, I think, the artistic spirit. One of my favorite comedians, he's an up-and-coming comedian right now named Donish McBool. He talks about L.A. and he goes, I hate L.A. I go, why, Donish? And he goes, you got a bunch of motherfuckers who believe in nothing but have opinions on everything. And I really love that line. And one of the things that I really love about comedy, and I love being around John Stewart during his years at The Daily Show when I was a correspondent on the show, is John, Stephen, Oliver. When you're around those guys, they really believe what they're saying. But yeah, the city of LA, it's why I still, when I fly in, I fly right out. It's traumatizing. One of the toughest things for me, and I wonder if this was your case. So I lived in LA for about six years and then I moved to New York. And I realized this a few years ago. Every day I would get into my car and drive to the various auditions around the city. I was waiting to be picked. And I think what broke me was if you just don't get picked again and again and again and again, and you start to forget your own self-worth, you know, and you feel like you're waiting for someone to pick you or to validate your existence or say that you're good enough.
0: My dad told me something simple, but it was really comforting. He said, Ana, they don't know how to fit you in there. It felt very reflective of my experience in Los Angeles at that time. Like, I know I'm a little off. Maybe my line curvature delivery in these moments is a little wonky. I remember very much feeling like that short, unattractive girl for years.
2: Waiting to get picked. right?
0: Yeah. And the summation, which is a conclusion you came to as well, is that if you're not proactive, almost from the ground up, then it's hard to have a sustaining foothold in the industry, don't you think?
2: Yeah. And I think one of the things that I realized, one of the most powerful things in negotiation is is when you're willing to walk. And it's funny, there's been times where I've negotiated things now at this point in my career, where I've just told people, yeah, it's cool. I'm leaving. Much love and respect to you and yours. Love and life. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. But there's all these people in, in Hollywood that will bend over backwards. Yeah, yeah, I'm not them. It's totally fine. And there was this inflection point in 2013. And I was testing for the listeners. Testing for a pilot is this big deal where...
0: You've like signed your contract.
2: you sign a seven-year deal to a network or whatever.
0: And you still don't know if you're getting the job, but you're kind of familiar with the other actors who are up for it because you've been going through the ringer.
2: Yeah, and so... Generally, the way they would do this is when you would test for things. This is a very 2012, 2013 story, but they would have a lead. Let's say the lead's name is Brad. They would have three Brads, and then they would have one ethnic dude. They'd be like, all right, we got to go with brown guy, black guy, Asian guy. We're going to mix it up. Maybe Brad could be ethnic, but we just have to have this to protect ourselves, potentially from a lawsuit and or who knows? This could be a Hail Mary. So I'm sitting there for this pilot called Cuz Bros, and I'm testing with the other guys. Everybody's talking about their dating life and their personal life. Everyone's trying to act like we're not thinking about the audition. And I'm like, I'm thinking about proposing to my girl. Like she's been my my lady for years and years and years. She's my college sweetheart. I think she's the one she just got her PhD. And I told everybody our Bollywood love story or whatever. And then I remember one of the guys turns and looks at me and he goes, Don't you want to see if you book Cusbros before you do something really crazy? And in my mind, again, this is how sick and demented that town will make you. I was like, yeah, maybe I should wait to see if I book cuz before I do something hasty, like marry the love of my life, who's a doctor PhD. Obviously, I didn't book cuz But I remember getting back to my car and thinking to myself, I repeated that sentence. And I just crumpled up the sides that said cuz And I'm like, I will never let cuz bros stop me from doing something that I want to do. Like, you also have to have a very sobering moment where you have to look at yourself in the mirror and be like, am I really chasing cuz bros? Did I throw everything away? You have to really come to terms with that. Since then, that moment in kind of 2013, and I made that decision and to have agency over the decisions in my life, I've never looked back. And so my relationship with being a public figure or navigating this crazy thing called show business has been defined by that. I have to do it on my terms.
0: That is so fucking powerful and important and brave.
2: I want to be clear though, Anna. like I will do commercials. But I walk into it just being clear in what you're doing and why you're doing it. That is what it's all about. Not have delusions about it because you'll wake up and you'll actually be tricking yourself. You'll start taking Cuzbro seriously.
0: Yes, you're 100% right. It feels like our industry's insistence on extreme prioritization of career over all else is not the way I want to live.
2: You know, what's interesting is I tried to always think about what's the underlying emotion behind this? Why am I doing this? And on yes. some level, I feel like what's underneath Cuz Bros is this desire for fame. Fame gives you validation. It means you're worth something. And on a very macro level, it's almost like everybody who's on social media, we feel like we're one scroll away from being forgotten. That if I book this show, or if the pilot gets picked up, or if the series gets renewed, I somehow will avoid death. Death of ego, death of relevance. I have to always remember, Hasan, you're a comedian. Remember the cosmic joke. None of this matters and nobody cares.
0: Totally. I was in a relationship with an actor when I first moved to Los Angeles. And I had done Scary Movie and he hadn't done much, but he was feeling insecure. And he said, but you don't understand. You have something that's like in celluloid now. You have like, after you die, you have something. And I thought, oh my God, like legacy? Yeah. The the idea of being hung up on legacy is daunting.
2: Yeah, you also have to be kind of a sociopath to be playing for like the statue business.
0: Totally. My brother talks about the self-congratulatory element of our industry and how no other industry really does it like us. Okay, what is your relationship with the idea of patriotism?
2: So one of the things that I've struggled with in terms of my identity, you know, I grew up in this country, Muslim American post 9-11 and my sophomore year of high school, 9-11 happened. And that was a real turning point for me where America quickly felt like a place where I was wearing my home jersey to where I'm now wearing an away jersey. And kind of my loyalty in my place in this country was very much kind of questioned. And it's interesting, here we are 20 years later and it's been announced the U.S. government is looking to now pull back troops from Afghanistan, Iraq, and leave this kind of never-ending war that we've been in the past two decades. But these past two decades during the quote-unquote war on terror was a very interesting and trying time for my community. And I really had to think about what is my relationship with America And it's vacillated between those times where I've had the audacity to say, no, I am a home jersey. This is where I was born. This is my country. And I have the audacity of equality. And then there's been times where it's vacillated the other way, where it's like, look, I'm an artist. I'm a citizen of the world. I'll get in where I fit in. I'm not defined by arbitrary lines that are drawn up by men. So I go between those things. Now I'm a father of two. And one of the things that I've fundamentally thought about is, are countries redeemable? One of the things we're reckoning with in this country is, especially on the wake of the the Chauvin verdict, is the United States fundamentally a redeemable nation, even though it was built on certain ideologies that were incredibly painful and oppressive to certain communities. And you can have a nihilistic worldview or an optimistic worldview because I have two kids. I fundamentally believe because people can be redeemable. Therefore, nations can be redeemable. I believe in the goodness of people and the ability of humanity to help one another, to see beyond our tribal differences, to hopefully build prosperity for civilization. And so that has been my kind of philosophical disposition towards patriotism.
0: I think a lot about how we absorb the idea of our Americanness and how it's for some of our population, it hasn't been ever questioned and I think in a worldview, there is, it's not the best comparison, but a little bit of like the person who has always been attractive. Things have been relatively easy for them in life. So therefore, the expectation is we need the jet skis. And then when we travel abroad, how humbling it can be. Yes. Of
2: and, and what's and, interesting, I don't know if you feel this way, but being an artist in the age of the Internet, I feel borderless. Like wherever I travel in the world, people show me love and that gives me hope. One of the things I think both you and I can connect on as artists is life all happens in the gray. Very few things are binary, all good or all bad. And so I try not to fall into the trap of the culture war of what does it mean to be American or you're being a good American, this person's being a bad American. I genuinely think that we're at our best when we look past our tribal differences and come together that's the world that I want my children to live in. And I want them, if they ever see something bad happening or something wrong happening for them to step up irrespective of who it's happening to. And I think we're seeing that right now because it's what a lot of Asian Americans are going through right now. They're having this home in a wage Jersey moment right now where immediately because of the COVID pandemic, there is an entire community now that's been targeted and spotlighted in a very negative way. And it's our job to step up for them and say, no, 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 these are our neighbors. These folks are American. They don't need to prove their patriotism to us.
0: I love how you frame the idea of how parenthood has insisted you should choose a more optimistic road.
2: Yeah. I mean, did you read that big New York Times cover? It was like, we have 10 years left to live on the planet before catastrophic climate change that will make the earth unlivable. I was like, I hear you, but I have a son and a daughter. So I got to do what I got to do to make sure that this planet is livable for them. You showing me a big ass photo of fields on fire. I can't entertain that choice.
0: Yes, I completely agree with you. All right. Do you collect anything?
2: Yes. Sneakers.
0: All right. The house is burning. Which top three do you grab?
2: I would say the Air Jordan 11 because it was the one shoe that I couldn't get as a kid that I got as an adult. The Air Jordan 1 because it goes with everything. And then these shoes that I'm wearing today, which are the Nike Overbreak.
0: Those are awesome.
2: They're just some like crazy ass space shoes that I'm really into. I love having something that I can obsess about that doesn't matter. I don't know if that makes sense. Completely. Like I get why people are into sports because it so matters, but it also doesn't matter. We need things like that in life that have all the stakes in the world, but at the end of the day, have no stakes.
0: When you talk about the tribalistic mindset, I was thinking about asking you if you were a sports fan. Yes. Who do you support?
2: Unfortunately, I'm a Sacramento Kings fan, unfortunately.
0: Why is that unfortunate? Because they're doing... They're not
2: doing great, but I am very loyal to them and I've been loyal to them for years and years and years. And funny enough, you say this, I've been very public and on the record about my love of the Kings. And so Bobby Hurley, who used to play for the Kings, I guess heard me on an interview and just mailed me out of the blue. What? He played for the Sacramento Kings in the mid to late 90s. And he sent me a signed jersey. It came in the mail. Oh. But it was very sweet because I love him, but he was a relatively obscure player. But as a kid, it was one of the first games I went to. I saw him in the nosebleeds and he was a smaller guy and I was a short kid. And so I really connected with him. I was like, who's number seven? You know, my dad's like, oh, that's Bobby Hurley. And I was like, I'm like number seven. And so I still wear number seven to this day because of him. And it was very sweet of Bobby to send me that. So thank you, Bobby.
0: I love that. Bobby Hurley. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a great story. As much as I want to emotionally distance myself from the tribal element, things like sports or even like when it comes to award ceremonies, for someone's day to be devastated by a team losing, I really fight against sort of the logic behind it.
2: You know, Anna, I don't think we should lose it because there's two things I think that are really great about sports. One, you get civic pride. You get to be like, I'm from Seattle, home of the Mariners. You can immediately connect with people from Seattle.
0: You're right. In a very safe conversational space.
2: And then number two is, one of the things I've thought about for a long time is, I want to have a healthy marriage and I want to have a healthy family life. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got is, do you want to be together or do you want to be right? And I think for societies to heal, we need things that will bring us together and friendly ways to disagree. So what I mean by that is I can go to a bar and I can see a Red Sox fan fight with a Yankees fan and they will go at it. And then at the end of their argument, they'll be like, ah, Let me get you a beer. Right. You can't do that with religion. You can't do that with politics. Like how many Thanksgiving conversations have you been in where you just go, grandma, I'd rather not get into it.
0: What a great angle to think of it as serving an important purpose.
2: Yes. Yes. I think Hollywood award shows are stupid, but I do think like movie fandom is cool. I just got into a huge argument this morning and it was a friendly argument. I said Christian Bale was my favorite Batman. Somebody else said Michael Keaton was my favorite Batman. And we got into it. And at the end of it, we were both like, ah, you present some good points.
0: Well, now I want to know what the points are.
2: I feel like the Tim Burton era of Batman was really cool in the sense that it was a very Burton-esque worldview. I thought Keaton went from comedy and drama really well. But those three films, the Christian Bale Batman films, to me, captured the darkness and the grittiness of Frank Miller's graphic novels through Chris Nolan's lens. And just to me, those three films are incredible. I just feel like in terms of rewatchability factor, they're dope.
0: That's where I would disagree, I think, in the rewatchability factor.
2: You don't want to rewatch them.
0: I would prefer if I were to watch a Batman, maybe because I saw the Keaton Basinger film probably when it came out.
2: Yeah. I love that Batman. And when it came out on VHS, the logo didn't even fit on the front. If you go to someone's house, you go, whoa, your parents said you get Batman on VHS. I remember if someone was like really dangerous and their parents were cool, they'd have Batman and Pretty Woman on VHS. If you remember the cover, the VHS cover, Julia Roberts is wearing this like pink outfit with the black leather dress and it's very short. And I grew up in a somewhat conservative Muslim household. And I remember going to a friend's house and being like, whoa, like you guys have this photo of this kind of half-naked woman with Richard Gere just in the living room?
0: My childhood was not dissimilar. My mom hated Pretty Woman. We never had a Nintendo. We
2: Did you guys get cable TV?
0: Yeah, but I remember maybe 12 channels and my mom didn't let us watch it. So if she went out to the grocery store, she would come home, feel the television, the box television, of course, to see if it was warm. My brother and I started putting frozen food on it, which just simply dripped through the vents.
2: Yeah. You also don't want the TV to perspire. All
0: right. So have you ever written a fan letter?
2: I have not written a fan letter, although I was pretty close. So one of my favorite authors of all time is Beverly Cleary. And I remember a kid at my school, his name was Michael Cleary. And he told me, hey, do you know my grandmother's Beverly Cleary?
0: I love that you're kind of telling me this as a secret.
2: (laughs) You have to understand in the second grade, Beverly Cleary's books were right that age group, like Second, third, fourth grade, you start reading Ramona, you start reading that whole kind of series, right? And he goes, listen, if you want to write her a letter or something, I can get it to her. And then I remember I was writing a letter and Mrs. Caldwell, our school librarian, told me, no, Michael Cleary is not related to Beverly Cleary. (laughs) It was really heartbreaking.
0: I can't believe this librarian just delivered the shit news and then didn't follow up with a helpful, like, but I bet there's a way we could get this letter to Beverly.
2: Oh, that would have been really sweet. She should have done that.
0: Yeah. Oh, I did want to ask you, if men could give advice to women, what would you say?
2: I'm not one to give advice, but I can tell you my personal experience.
0: Oh, let's hear it.
2: Uh, yeah. yeah, I think my biggest shortcoming in that department where me and Bina differ is her ability to multitask and my ability to barely do one task. This morning, we were dropping our daughter off at school and we were having a conversation because she has a work trip coming up. So she's talking to me about the drop off schedule and the sleep schedule. I got to juggle both our son and her for a couple days this weekend while she's doing her work trip. She's talking to me. I'm fully locked into our conversation this morning at 7.48 a.m. And our daughter's in the back. and She's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I'm completely ignoring her. And Bina's able to switch radio stations seamlessly. And I'm just talking to her. And she's like, quit being a jerk to her. And I'm like, babe, I pick you. I'm picking you right now. Why are you upset with me? And she's like, you have to be able to do both. And I think some of the times where I have dropped the ball with communication or just being a better partner is I'm locked into podcast mode and I'm dropping the ball on something else.
0: I think if I ever described myself as a multitasker, people in my life would laugh because I've been too uh, lackadaisical.
2: Don't you think you're better at picking up multiple Bluetooth signals? I feel like Bina, my sister, my mom, all the women in my life are so much better at picking up everybody. emotional Bluetooth signals. And then they're able to just delegate all of that energy very productively, much better than me. I can lock into one signal and then I'll completely disregard the other two, which is why she's so much better even at parties than I am. She's able to host and be the nucleus in a way that I have never been able to.
4: So
0: do you think that maybe our listeners takeaway will be that maybe a lot of men are like that? And so if they're not paying attention to you,
2: I mean, no, if someone's not paying attention to you, like I tell Bina this all the time, yo, I'm obsessed with you. She's like, what are you talking about? I know everything about you and I'm obsessed. Sometimes I'll watch her watch TV and I'll know immediately from her look whether she really likes the show or not.
0: That is so romantic.
2: So she'll be watching like to all the boys, PS, I love you or something like that. I'll watch her watch it. And then I'll see her she'll do this little smirk, just the right (laughs) side of her mouth like this. And I'll be like, oh, she's into it.
0: I love that.
2: But to me, that's what it's got to be. Like, I always want to be that obsessed with her. So if, I don't know, if your listeners have a, you- a boyfriend or a partner that's not into them like that, keep it moving. Life's too short.
5: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Okay, what personality traits did you inherit from your parents, do you think?
2: I think I got my entrepreneurial spirit from my mom. One of the things I love about my mom is she's so great at putting lists together and then executing on them. Like I just have so much respect for her because she was a doctor and then she learned real estate and she learned finance and she would figure out how to make us Halloween costumes. So we'd go to Michael's and then she would sew them together. Like
0: ingenuity.
2: Yeah. I got entrepreneurship from her. And then I think one of the things that my dad is so good at, everybody who meets Nudge me, people are like, I love your dad. I'm like, you don't know my dad. But one of the things he's really good at is he's such a personable person and he's fantastic at finding common ground. And one of the things that I've realized more and more in adulthood is whatever you're trying to do, if you're trying to scale any sort of operation, you're going to have to work with other people and you're going to have to find common ground. And my dad was really good at that stuff. I've seen him diffuse really heated family drama by at times humbling his own ego or stepping up and getting two people in a room together and saying, we need to proceed and move forward and getting my mom's kind of entrepreneurial hustle. And then my dad's ability to resolve conflict has just been super helpful, especially for what I do in my life now.
0: Are you at a place in your life where you tell them things like that?
2: They were just with us. They stayed with us this past month. And I told them a couple stories where I was like, I was really proud to be your son when I found this out.
0: God, what a great gift. Yeah. What is a trait you dislike in others?
2: Probably something that I dislike in myself, to be honest with you. And maybe it's when someone is not being direct with me. They're kind of being soft in their language and, hey, it'll be cool or, hey, we'll figure it out. And then you find out it's a no. And that's something that I don't like in myself. Sometimes there is a very, very tough bandaid that you have to just pull off. There's no positive outcome to this. This is the worst outcome, but it's the best worst outcome. you got to just rip the bandaid off right now. And I've always struggled with that because I'm afraid maybe this person will hate me or they won't like me. And
0: It's incredibly difficult. It's like a verbal jumping into the deep end of the pool. But I like that application in life when you have to have hard conversations. I appreciate directness as well. And I'm working on being more straightforward. So I am
2: perceived
0: as a person who doesn't waste time time, it's just not helpful. (laughs) Who would you invite to your dream dinner party?
2: It's funny. There's all these things that I feel like my entire life, especially we're the same generation. We were told, hey, these are the rules to life. You study really hard in high school. You go to a great college. You get this great job. And by the time we became of age to enter that world, I feel like the game completely changed. And the pandemic in these past 14 months just warp speeded all of those things. The disproportionate amount of financial capital that is in tech versus other industries. It just exposed those fault lines in a way we had never seen before. And one of the things that I would do at my dinner party is I've spent just the past year, year and a half, couple years, just reading different things to help bridge the gap and all these things I didn't understand. I'll give you an example. I think you could totally relate to me here. I think about everything that I learned in high school and college. I know about Mesopotamia. I know about mitosis. I don't know the difference between a W-2 and a W-9. It's unacceptable. I did calculus BC. I do not know how to claim dependence on my taxes. That divide between just the esoteric and the practical is unacceptable. And so some of the books and the people that I've been following and trying to read and learn about, those are the people that I would invite to dinner. You know, Nassim Taleb or Naval Ravikant, like these people, I've been reading their work where I'm like, oh, wow, you're really interesting. And your philosophical principles at the way in which you see the world and the future and technology is really interesting to me. I want to learn from you. I would love to see how you shaped and formulated your worldview. So those are people I'd invite to dinner.
0: In terms of vaccination passports and that idea, what do you think the solution as a society is for this?
2: Yeah, so I think the thing we have to figure out is what is our philosophical position in regards to this question specifically. When the pandemic started, the biggest problem was denial. This isn't a problem. It's not going to come. Remember what the president said, it's going to be gone by Easter. It's just going to disappear. My body, my choice, my mask, my all that nonsense you saw in regards to the mask debate and how that got politicized. So it was the denial factor. Now we're on this other end of the pandemic, which I call it the zeroism factor, which is total cases are going down. Our problem on this end is the zeroism. If COVID isn't zero, what do we do? And I think that's the murky gray territory, because at any point you could be at dinner six months from now and some update on your phone will let you know, hey, somebody just died from COVID. How do we reconcile that? If it will never be zero, how do we also reconcile the fact that, yes, some people will pass away or be very much affected by this thing versus our desire to move forward with quote unquote normal life and leave the house? So what do we do now with that? What is that number that everybody's okay with to go? And cool, the number is 250 million Americans vaccinated. And we are now crossing the Rubicon. You know what I mean? I
0: do. And I wonder about the declaration of having been vaccinated. How is that going to manifest? Because I imagine, you know, a high-end restaurant may want to serve only vaccinated people. There will be, like, these pockets starting to emerge of, like, vaccinated-only So does this come in the form of an app and does it have to be controlled by the private sector or can it happen on a federal level? But I don't know if it can because constitutionally it may not, right? I don't know.
2: I have my card. I'm willing to pull it out at any point. But I understand the kind of civil liberties argument behind it. And I see both sides. Like there's certain people on the other side of the argument of like, why are you afraid of carrying a card and using that? Like they require you to give vaccines to children or when you travel to certain countries. So there's people on that side of the argument of like, what's the big deal? Like I've been getting vaccines to travel the world for a very long time. And then there's people on the other side of the argument of, whoa, 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 like you don't have rights over my body. You cannot tell me to get a vaccine or not. So I don't know how to reconcile this, but
0: I don't either at all. But I do think a system of some kind will be implemented and maybe a variety of them
2: like TSA pre-check style. Like, hey, it's a thing on my phone. I got the little check. You know what I mean? How have you approached the vaccination thing? The way I've approached it for me is like this. The entire time, because, you know, my mother-in-law lives with us and she's immunocompromised. Both my parents are diabetic. The thing that I didn't want to do is I didn't want to be a liability. So I've always had this kind of core personal belief of just focus on what you can control. And so when I got vaccinated, it was really emotional for me because I finally had validation in that moment to know, Hey, Hassan, you're not going to be the vector that causes someone to get hurt. At least you've minimized it down to the point within every possible way you could within your power. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think it's a huge irresponsibility to not get vaccinated. I think that it's a small gesture to protect society at large. As time passes, maybe in a year from now, this will be only giving maybe 30% more importance in one's life as getting the flu shot, like sort of having that flu shot-like mentality. I hope that that's what happens.
2: It's basically this. To what extent do you trust institutions versus how bad do you want to get back to regular life? My desire to get back on stage, get on tour, go do your podcast in person is greater than my trust of Johnson & Johnson. And I got the J&J. So it's like... Yeah,
0: 100%. You just suck up and do it.
2: I got loopy at 13 months, 14 months. I'm like, I can't do the slumber party any longer. I have to do everything I can in my human capabilities to just get back to life. And to me, that was the vaccine. That's my take on it.
0: Yeah, I know. I hear you. Do you want
2: to end on something a little bit more upbeat or interesting rather than vaccine? Yeah, but
0: I so appreciate your thoughts. Oh, I did want to ask you what talent or ability would you most like to have?
2: I wish I was good at building things. Like my brother-in-law is really good at building stuff with his hands. And he showed me this video. He was like, hey, I built this gym in the garage. I was like, yeah. And he's good at fixing cars. It's just such a tactile, like, I built this and I can show you, look, I made it. Look, it's a thing I made. I wish I could do that. I'm not good at that. I'm good at writing and highlighting stuff and being like, look at these notes. I have a great take on this, you know, like. I have a really great joke idea here, but that's not like building a gym in the garage. So that's a skill set I wish I had.
0: I like that, but I kind of feel like you might be the sort of person that if you have a strong desire to have an ability, you would achieve it.
2: Ana, I'm really bad. I'm a horrible driver and I... I will straight up just like in the middle of building an Ikea crib for the baby. I'll just stop halfway through and I'm like, I'm just call a friend. Like, can you help me settle this?
0: When you say you're a really bad driver, do you mean you're bad with directions? Do you mean you are like jerky on the pedal?
2: I don't instill confidence. People feel scared when I'm driving.
0: Like, are there a lot of times like a, whoa, like...
2: Or I'm driving and I'm talking and I'm being really confident. And I'm saying, hey, we're having a conversation. And then you hear a like, oops, just hear something. And be like, oh, Huston, you almost sideswiped that person. Just do better, man.
0: Yeah. All right. That sounds fairly bad.
2: Yeah, it's really bad.
0: Are you good with directions, though? I really like maps. I have a ton of maps.
2: I like the beauty of a good topography map. You know how when you can feel the bumps of the mountains and you're like, ooh, the Colorado Rockies and it's like bumpy? Yeah. Do you know what? Maybe the thing, this is just the theory as to why you may like maps, is the control contained nature of a map.
0: You are so right. That's probably why I like puzzles.
2: And the reason why the internet is so anxiety-inducing is the internet never ends. Whereas a map, it's like, this is California, baby. This is what it is. We got the five, we got the 405, we got the 10, like... This is it.
0: You're so right. Okay, one last question. When or where are you happiest or most content?
2: When my children are laughing. That's beautiful.
0: Hey, I can't thank you enough.
2: This was so fun. Like, honestly.
0: Yeah, truly, you're amazing. You gave such an incredible interview and the advice that you give, it's really wonderful. Thank you again.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey everyone, April Beyer is back, now officially as my much-needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. Zachary, hey! Hi, Zachary. Hello. So, Zachary, your letter is like full on. Will you tell us what's happening?
1: Yeah. So I have some things going on with my parents, I guess I could say. I already have things in the past with them on my own that I've been dealing with that aren't very positive, you know, relationship-wise. And the mother of my child, who they started to notice and talk to as soon as she had a kid. And as soon as I had a kid, they all started talking to me. So it's kind of like, as soon as you have a kid, everyone just pops up out of nowhere so it's like convenient for them because it has something to do with them because now they have a grandkid. But at the same time, you know, where were you at before that, you know? So I was talking to my mom. It was kind of like everything was all right, I guess. She decided to come down. This isn't Christmas. And she drove all the way from Colorado to Connecticut to see the baby. For me, I was like, oh my God, I haven't seen my mom in four years. So I was like, oh wow, this is pretty cool. The thing is, I didn't know what to expect because I haven't seen my mom in a very long time. I know she's still the same person and stuff like that. But uh, she kind of starts a thing, right? So she's only there for two days. First day, I was like, I'm going to spend time with my mom. It'd be kind of weird to have, you know, introduce her to her and the kid and my girlfriend's mom and stuff. Just, you know, when I haven't even seen her. So I spent the night, you know, saw her. It turned into my girlfriend wasn't feeling well. And my mom was going to come over and see the baby. And it was like six o'clock at night. And I told my mom, hey, can you please wait? Because Megan's not feeling well. You could still come, just you know, wait a second. You know, there's a lot going on. You know, she just had a baby, so it turned into just a huge mess. She's like, I drove all this way, and like, just holding everything over my head. Like, I drove this far, da da da, just to not see her. And I had her on speakerphone because my girl was sitting right there, and she can hear all the like bullshit she's saying, basically. And she doesn't know that side of my mom, but I do. And she's like, Well, I'll just tell Megan she got what she wanted. I'm like, Oh, what? Got what she wanted. What the hell are you talking about?
0: We've got a ways to go with your mom here, Zachary, but go on.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm like, she had four kids. Didn't she know? Like, it kind of sucks to have it. I wouldn't know. I saw like everything and I was like, wow, like it's pretty intense. So my dad calls me and he's, I haven't seen him for years either. I literally haven't seen anybody for that amount of time. So he calls me because my mom's upset. So he basically calls me to tell me how upset she is. Oh, hey, what's going on over there? I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, well, she's freaking out. You know, like she drove all that way. You're going to have her not see the baby. know. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I don't need you calling me to say what's going on. You're not even over here. I don't know why. Why are you calling me? You know, just to yell at me because nothing's going to change from you calling me, except for the fact that now I'm more upset. <laughs> I got so upset I broke my phone. <laughs> so i threw my phone on the ground and i broke it and i was like (laughs) no (laughs) then after my girlfriend she's like i don't even want her coming if she's gonna be like that i'm in the middle so i'm like i don't want to make my mom upset i don't want to make you upset i want to just make it work you know and it just turned out to just being like this is the thing i've flown and missed flights but i could you could change them She could have done that and just said, Hey, oh, I'm going to stay for a week. She only stayed for a couple of days. You could have changed the flight, but it's all based on her schedule. So,
0: from what we're hearing, there are like 80 things that all party members could have done differently. Yeah. But I want to tell you a couple of things that I imagine the gesture of your mom driving was cool and exciting and complimentary for you. Yeah. Like she's making this big effort and it was around Christmas, which, like, everything goes to shit around Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. My mom's side of the family that we were really close to really root out drama. Yeah. They can't help it, they just like need a fight. And as a kid growing up with that, I feel like I can hear you. Mm-hmm. It was confounding. And it always felt like there were so many avoidable steps that could have been taken. But these people seem to want this. That's why weddings were such a shit show, Zachary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want you to know that my experience sounds Similar. And I imagine it's for those reasons that you didn't talk to them for four years. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. it, It was both ways. It was a very big issue. Just it's a big part of how I feel and act all the time just because of what they did and said and whatever. And I've always tried to make things okay. And it's mostly my mom. My dad just happened to make it worse on that particular day. I mean, at the end of the day, it worked out. She came over, she saw the baby, but it was a fucking mess, dude. Like, yeah. it was not okay.
5: Zachary, what do you want to do? They don't live close by. You've got your girlfriend, you've got your baby. What is the issue going forward, and how can we help you?
1: So that's what, kind of where it stemmed from since the birth of the child. I mean, my girlfriend feels all types of ways about them. For going forward, I honestly, I just texted my mom a couple of weeks ago because the whole thing turned into, she blocked me, started blowing up my girlfriend to get pictures of the baby because for some reason, she doesn't want to say how you're doing. How's your day? How's Megan? You know, how's your baby? Whatever. You just I want a picture. That's it. You know, so to me, I read that as I don't want to send you a picture, you know, like you just want what you want. You don't want to know how I'm doing. You don't want to know what she's doing. You didn't even ask other babies. <laughs> you just asked for a picture.
5: What I keep hearing is, and I don't know what your relationship was like before the four year ago event, but it sounds to me in between everything you're saying is, hey, you guys weren't there for me. And if you don't want me And you don't care about me or my girlfriend. How could you care about this baby? Mm -hmm. Your biggest issue is that you haven't dealt with that because it's possible that they have had their own journey. They're now grandparents and they want to be part of it. And you have to look at this and go, are they toxic to my child? Yes. Are they? Do you think they could be bad for your kid? I think so. Okay. If you think they're bad for your kid and your relationship, that's a whole other thing. Right. You know, your mom sounds a little bit self-motivated, right? So she wants what she wants and the child is an extension of you. So in her mind, that is love for you. It's not just anybody's kid. She's not walking down the street asking strangers for pictures of their babies. It's your baby. (laughs)
1: Yeah. yeah.
5: Your kid is part of you and she wants to be part of that and maybe she's... She's making up for lost time. So you have a conversation. Forget about how she's treating your girlfriend, blowing up the phone. These are all just items, right? These are all just things on the list. You haven't yet dealt with your own relationship with them and getting some apologies and some salve for the pain that you've had over the last four years. So that needs to be handled first. It's really just saying, hey, we have some things to solve between us. Can we talk?
1: Right. Yeah.
5: And maybe just maybe you can turn this around. I don't know the toxic level of these people but you're being reactive instead of active. And you got to get into the driver's seat now and stop complaining about this and stop fighting them off and start talking.
0: I have a couple of thoughts, Zachary, on what to do. and Tell me if you think I'm way off. Okay. I would tell her, listen, I love you so much. I want to attempt to create some boundaries with my folks. And I want you to know that I suspect that I will be kind of searching for a relationship that I never had with them. And maybe there can be a reworking of this relationship. Unfortunately, there's probably going to be some shit. If you don't mind, I promise I'm going to be open and honest with you. And I just really hope that you kind of understand that I need to go through this and I'm not in the middle. I'm with you. Right. And then after that conversation, I would think about a structure maybe to give your parents. Are they still married, by the way? Oh, yeah. I wonder if there's a way to say something like, I've noticed... That in our family, we can get into this pattern of getting upset over little things. And I don't know. April, do you think this is like an interesting idea? Yes and
5: no. Interesting but bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) Like I said earlier, I don't know the toxicity of your parents. If they're decent people, but you're going through a rough time and you had something happen four years ago, then there's a repair to be done. If you don't feel like they are good for you and they're not good for your child then you have to distance yourself. Yeah. But I think what Anna is saying is she's getting the feeling that there's a little part of you that's hoping for a relationship, even though you may not know it's possible. I think all kids do, don't you think? But as we grow up, we got to figure out, like, is this actually good? Because there are people that can come into our lives. They're better parent figures to us than the ones that gave birth. So my question is back to you, Zachary. What do you want? Dream of dreams. If everybody behaved, what would you want?
1: What I would want, and just because I know I didn't say this, because this might be a good factor, I actually did send my mom a message and we talked about it. I said, Mom, I need some boundaries between you because there's a lot of things that happen that I have to talk to a therapist about that I'm still trying to get. So I told her that. She's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Can I just check on you once a week? I was like, yeah. But then she kind of pushed the boundaries. I even sent her birthday and my dad's birthday two days apart. They were just a couple weeks ago. I sent them birthday cards, some Starbucks gift cards, like all this stuff, because I want them to know I I'd love them like no matter what.
5: So you do love her. You do want her in your life. Of course, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a completely different conversation, right? This is just you growing up. Now you're a father. Yeah. So you have new boundaries. That's all that's happening. It sounds to me like you're really accommodating. And what happened was you've been accommodating your whole life. And now you have the responsibility to your girlfriend and your new child. And so you just stepped it up, yeah. right? And you got pushback from these people because they're not used to... you. Doing that. No. They're used to you playing nice. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So don't stress this. This is just about you becoming a man, right? Like now you're a dad right. and you have other responsibilities. So you've drawn the line. Everything will shake out accordingly, but you're going to get them whinging and whining along the way because you literally did a U-turn on your normal pattern.
0: <laughs> this is new. And they're going to be blaming your girlfriend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're going to think it's her fault.
1: No, they already Yeah, They did. They already did.
0: Then that's why it's really important for you to tell your girlfriend they're fucked up. They view you as an enemy. <laughs> yeah. You could be anybody. Yeah, yeah. And so please be patient. Please be patient. I love you so much. And if you can, when you communicate with them too,
5: if you can like mentally patronize them a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting is that no matter how old we get in life, right? And now you have all these new responsibilities. You still have the heart of the little boy or the young man that didn't get enough of what you needed and wanted. And that's what's calling out to me right now. It's just you asking for some accommodations your way and that you're saying it's hard for me to have you love love up on my kid when I think you need to have the relationship with me first yeah. before you have a relationship with my kid. Exactly. And let's figure out what that looks like. And my girlfriend needs that care and respect as well because she is the extension of me. And so that's what's really happening right now because they could be blowing up your phone, her phone, whatever, asking for baby pictures all day long and you'd be loving it if you felt like you had had enough. What you're really saying is, wait a minute, what about me? What about my turn? Right. What about my baby? <laughs> you didn't baby me.
1: <laughs> I told them that. I said... I said, what about, you know? Oh my God,
5: (laughs) Zachary, like I grew
0: up with loving parents, but with my son, they are incredible with him. And they let him off the hook for everything or whatever like grandparents do. But
5: I have reflected childishly, like what? (laughs) They weren't like that with me.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
5: Is it that? Or is it because you don't think that they're going to be good for your daughter? Those are two completely different things. Yeah, they are.
1: The biggest thing, what well, she said, I want a relationship with them first because I don't have one really like that. And with my dad, is I have zero really relationship with them. I don't talk to them, whatever, and my mom, I really don't either. But if it's four years you haven't seen them or done anything or even went to a dinner or anything or waved at him, You know, it's like I gotta have that first. And I even told my girlfriend that, and I have to respect what she thinks too because I don't want to just be sending pictures and shit. If she, cause she's like, well, I don't want to just getting pictures sending them to people. I don't know, and I'm like, well, I know I get that too. You know, if she treated her with respect and say a lot of the things that she said about her and to her, she wouldn't think that way at all. But so there's a reason why people think and feel, I wouldn't just say this for nothing, you know what I mean?
5: The thing is about people, especially at their age, is you're not going to change them. They are shifting, just like Anna said about her parents with her son. Yeah. When people get older, They sometimes they do become better people right? And then better parents as a result as they get older. So you're not going to change their dynamic. And you have to also prepare yourself That even though you go and say, here's what I need, that it may not happen. That at this stage of life, now that you are responsible for another human being, you're also going to have to understand that some things never 100% get solved because you can't control their behavior. You can only control your own. And there has to be a level of acceptance here. You know, you're the one that's going to therapy. They're not. They're not coming to you and saying, hey, honey, we did, you know, the last three years of therapy to really figure out like where we went wrong. and how we abandoned you or how we weren't there for you enough and we want to get together. You can't play one-man tennis. So do what you need to do, say what you need to say, but be careful that you're not falling back into your old accommodation role of you flying out, you making the allowances, you doing all of the giving, right? All you can do is say, here's how I felt, here's how I feel, here's what I would like in order for all of us to connect and for you to be in my kid's life. And if you can't do that, then we have an issue. And you have to be able to walk away and know this, okay? Yeah. Sometimes you have to go to people and say, I need an apology. I need an apology for what you've done and how I was treated. And I'm coming to you as your kid and I'm asking for this. But you also have to be okay that some people just don't know better, so they can't do better.
1: That's true, and I kind of wish I didn't have to tell someone to apologize, but it kind of sucks you got to tell someone.
5: Sometimes you do. It's the burn
0: of being a good person. That's right. That's right. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Like, you have to suck it up, and it's
5: awful. Because you know why? Because why should you drink the poison every day, Zachary, right? Like, it's not your poison to drink.
1: Exactly. Stop
5: it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever get a birthday card, Zachary? Do you get birthday cards from them? (laughs) Uh oh yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, you had to think about that too hard. Okay. This is a one-sided relationship and what I would suggest that you work on with your therapist is kind of tying the knot on your own story right? because a lot of kids aren't dealt the great parent card. And if you continue on the hamster wheel of trying to get their love, trying to get their love, you're going to forever be doing that. Yeah. And I think the reason why this is coming to a head is because you just had a kid and you're seeing the other side. You've got to watch the movie Anna, if you remember this movie, Once Around with Holly Hunter and Richard Dreyfuss. I love that cast. I'm writing it down. It is such a beautiful film. It's not your exact story, but it's about standing up and saying, like you did earlier, this is my partner now. And family, even though you gave birth to me, this is my family now. And everybody has to get in line and respect that. Boundaries, by the way, aren't telling people, hey, buddy, back off. Boundaries are calm, they're quiet, they're confident. And nobody can push or move you because you're immovable, right? Right. But it's not out of anger or fear or angst or pain. It's because this is what you want and this is what you know. That's why I'm saying stop reacting and start asking yourself in a perfect world, what do I want? I want their love. Okay, their love is imperfect, but what do I want for my family now going forward? What do I want for my girlfriend? What do I want for my daughter? What do I want for me? And then design everything you do around that and know that you are only 50% of the equation. You can't make up for their behavior and you can't make them different people. And it's so important, Zachary, that you don't hold on to pain from that and get more into the acceptance boat. Right. Like this is who these people are. Yeah. Hey, Zachary, I
0: want you to remember the phrase. Hey, mom, we're approaching a boundary issue here.
5: Oh, that's a good one.
0: (laughs) Hey, mom, we're approaching a boundary issue here. I'm going to have to let you go.
1: That's what I was thinking of what to say yesterday when she asked for the picture. I didn't know. what. I didn't say anything because I didn't know what to say. And that's what I'm going to say, because that sounds a lot better
0: it'll be your shorthand and maybe someday she'll laugh.
1: Yeah. 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 And what what she was saying, April, she was saying the way they were brought up might've been different, right? Yes. That's one thing I kind of forget about sometimes not saying that's an excuse for them to act the way they do.
5: Yeah. It's about the understanding and the compassion, but you don't shift behavior or put yourself or your girlfriend or your child in harm's way. Just because you understand and have compassion. That's the difference. Definitely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The
5: difference is, I get it. You weren't shown love. And that's why your mom does this. That's why she did the rant of, I drove all this way, right? Yeah. She wanted attention. Your child gives her attention. She probably is sharing those photos with her neighbors and anybody else who will listen because now she gets to say, Look at me. I'm a grandmother. It gives her pride. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it isn't so much about give her everything she wants, it's about your boundaries plus an understanding I can have compassion for somebody and say, oh, you know, that's really, that's hard. You know, that person had a hard knock life and I get why they're acting out, but that doesn't mean I'm going to put myself in a position of being harmed just because I have compassion and understanding.
1: Right, exactly. It's
5: just so that you can get out of your own pain and not blame yourself and not use your entire life when you have so much to do right now, making their life different or better. It's just so that you can intellectually and physically, spiritually understand it. That's the defining difference.
1: Definitely, yeah.
5: You have bigger fish to fry right now, right? You're under <laughs> your new life. Yeah. Zachary, I really hope this has helped.
1: Definitely. Because I've never, I don't get to I tell anyone this stuff. <laughs> you know, that's the biggest thing. No one, the only one person I get to talk to about is the people who are in it. Nobody that sees it from the outside and sees, oh, well, maybe because, you know. So, yeah, definitely. The bottom line, I just don't want anything that causes stress or anything toxic whatsoever around my daughter at all, ever.
5: Then you won't. You're all good because you already know what you want.
1: <laughs> yeah.
5: It's a little bit of a school teacher vibe that you have to
0: adopt because you've been taught to react through your childhood, to slam the phone down, to not manage your anger, to let your parents aggravate you more than anything. So you have to work hard in yourself. Like when you see their calling or whatever, I want you to like be in a place where you're prepared to deal with them as you would in customer service. That's
1: that's a good way to, <laughs> I like that. that's a good way to think about it. A
0: little bit of a smile on your face. You're in a good mood. You're whatever. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. And that'll aggravate and confuse them for a
5: second, but they'll get used to it. <laughs> what Anna is saying, essentially, Zach, is stop being the kid and start being the parent Yeah, to your mom. I know that sounds weird, but you got to treat your, when you look at your mom and speak to her, you got to imagine that she's that 10 year old little girl in that abusive, horrific family environment that is acting out because she didn't get enough love and attention. So you have to daddy her now. Yeah. So adopt that mindset and
0: hopefully it will bring you even closer to your girlfriend as well. You know, if she sees you handling them with control, that's mature. That's great.
5: And also too, kudos to Zachary before we go, is that you are stopping the generational trauma. Yeah. You're stopping it right here and now. And you can stop it by stop torturing yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to
5: glide through this understanding that these are these people, they're on their own track. You cannot live their life. You cannot shift them, change them. You can only speak to what it is that you you are and what you want and need in this lifetime and what you want for your family. Mm -hmm. But it stops today, right? Which is the coolest thing ever, because this stuff can go on for generations and generations. So kudos, Zachary, for being so cool and smart and loving to yourself and your family. Yeah.
1: Awesome. That's awesome. I feel like a really good person. (laughs) That's awesome.
5: You are a good person.
0: You are. Thank you so much. Please give my love to your girlfriend and baby. And definitely don't forget. Hey, Mom, we're approaching a boundary issue.
1: I want to write that down. That's probably the kindest but firmest way you could say it.
5: Yeah, exactly. And watch the movie once around because you will find a scene in there that will tell you exactly the passion and tone that you need to borrow to get this job done.
1: Once around. I'll definitely check that out. This is the best help I've gotten. Thank you.
5: Good luck with all of that, Zachary honestly
1: thank you so much
5: thanks again zachary
1: thank you bye bye
5: bye zachary